The Boys of Tech with Edwin Herman and Brett King. Thank you very much. Welcome along. Welcome to episode 47 of the Boys of Tech for Monday the 14th of December 2009. I'm your host this week. My name is Edwin Herman. I know the intro also mentioned Brett King. He normally joins us over the Skype link. Uh, He won't be this week. And I've also realised that there's only one more episode of the Boys of Tech left this year. Now, next week's episode is going to be the last one for this year. So we've certainly come a long way. The other thing I was reflecting on this week was a news item that was a little disturbing. It was about the amount of pesticide residues in food. You know, food that you, fresh food and vegetables that you get from the supermarket. And the top 12 products to contain pesticide residue in order are celery, number one, uh, peaches, also apricots, buttercream and cheese, Uh, And number five, wheat. Now, wheat's in almost everything. That's a bit of a concern. Uh, Apples, plums, mandarins, (laughs) raspberries. Number 10 is oranges. This is pretty much all the fruit. Strawberries, grapes, raisins, and sultanas at number 12. And uh, that top 12 list is closely followed by cucumber, nectarines, lettuce, tomatoes, wine, and pears. So... (laughs) To me, that's pretty much all your fresh fruit and vegetables. But what alternative is there? I mean, well, I guess you can grow your own. If you're fortunate enough to own your own property and have enough land for a garden. But there there really isn't much. Well, I I guess the other thing is you, you could buy organic food. That's true. You could buy organic food. But then again, not everything is an, is available in the organic variety. You might find organic apples and pears. But, you know, if you want to find organic... I don't know, raspberries, for example. I I think you'd be hard-pressed to do that. Be hard-pressed to find that. It's a wee bit concerning. This story was on uh, one of the news sites, and actually one of the comments there was uh, underneath the story. You can leave comments. And, and one of the people there, I think, was an older guy. Well, I gather he is because he says, oh, I've been eating these for something like 59 years. By now I should be dead. But, of course, the thing that people don't realise is, you know, 30, 40 years ago they didn't use... The, the variety of pesticides that they do now, and certainly not to the extent they do now. So uh, th- those arguments aren't necessarily valid. But anyway, there's food for thought. Literally. Pun completely intended. Alrighty, so let's kick off the show this week then with Apple blocking 1,000 iPhone apps. Yeah, that's a huge amount of iPhone apps. They've blocked all 1,000. Uh, in fact, there's more, a little more than a thousand. And the reason they've done that this time, in, in fact, I'm sure we've had, had at least two or three stories on this show in previous episodes about Apple blocking applications. I think they've got good reason for this one. There are allegations that the developer behind those applications planted fake positive reviews about the apps. So this is this is astroturfing. You publish an application and you go and create yourself a few accounts and you rate that application particularly highly. And we all know that the highly rated applications 
on the Apple App Store do very well. They do very, very well. So Apple have pulled the plug on those applications and they're not really saying a lot more at this stage. As I said, these are all allegations at the moment. We haven't seen any results from an investigation just yet, but I dare say one will be carried out and we'll know in due course. Now, this wouldn't be the first time a company's been caught astroturfing online, but at a guess, a thousand applications in one hit would probably have to be one of the biggest single instance of that. So if you were looking for that travel guide and it's no longer there, now you know why. Could well be one of these ones. Now in China, a woman has pretty much gone under surgery to transplant fingerprints. Yeah, she's had fingerprint surgery so that she can avoid detection at airports. And this story is interesting because it kind of highlights the fallacy that biosecurity is bulletproof. It's not. In fact, at the KiwiCon conference, it was demonstrated how easy it is to fake fingerprints and to, you know, to use someone else's if you really want to. They are not, that's not a bulletproof piece of technology. In fact, it's one of the weakest forms of detection. Uh, you know, you can fool it. And the reason they use it, though, is because it's, it's yet one more form. And the idea is, I mean, no form of identification is, is bulletproof. So the idea is to, to use a whole heap of different ones, you know, a visual you know, photo so you can, the person doing the check can look at you and then compare it against the photo. That's one way. Obviously, that's not bulletproof either. You get identical twins, you can't tell them apart. And of course, you get these random doubles where, you know, someone looks like somebody else that's completely unrelated. In fact, I'm sure there's someone that must look like me at work because at least some years ago anyway, people used to mistake me for somebody else. And just on site, they used to say, oh, aren't you so-and-so? Uh, no, 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 that's not me. So obviously I have a double. In fact, the, the theory goes that we all have a double out there. And then if, if you think about it, 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 mathematically it probably makes sense. You know, there are six and a half billion people in this world, near on seven billion now, actually. Uh, there's bound to be someone that looks very close to you. So anyway, this this woman in China, has she's been caught. She paid around 15,000 US dollars to have the fingerprints on her left hand switched with those on her right. So it's not really a complete transplant from, as in from somebody else, from, you know, from a donor, someone who's died recently, but it, it is a, a transplant nonetheless and that the, the fingerprints have been switched from one hand to the other. So in theory, when it's fed into the computer, you know, left index finger, that doesn't detect the pattern because what's being presented is the right index finger. So maybe that's how she was caught. I don't know. I haven't read into the details, but there you go. So people are doing it. And it, as I said, it, it really just goes to show that, yeah, biometrics are just one of many checks that you can do. And it's not the be all and end all at all. And in fact, uh, at KiwiCon conference a couple of weeks back, you don't need to do transplants to get past those things. No, no. There are much easier methods than that. Just coming back to this case, the Japanese police reckon that there's a huge market for this in China. They reckon that the Chinese doctors are running a booming business in fingerprint surgery. Kind of got to wonder how many you know, have been successful and, and therefore not been detected. That's the real question. Now, Google has announced it's including real-time data in its searches. Uh, we knew this was coming. It's really no surprise. Even if you didn't know it was coming, you're probably sitting there thinking, you mean they didn't already? You know, if you search for topical things, for example, Tiger Woods, 
or if you search for Copenhagen climate change, you'll see inserted somewhere between the results a live feed that kind of scrolls through mostly Twitter content, but there's other stuff there as well. And never before have we had a search engine like this where you can get results within minutes of something being reported. Because if you if you think about it, all the rest of the content on Google is stuff that's been indexed by the robots that go out and you know spider the web and collect everything and and store it away in a big database. And that can take weeks before you see it in Google before it actually you know affects any any search results. Uh, now this real time data is you know literally real time. You know I was watching some stuff come through you know one two three minutes ago from when I searched. Now I understand that Twitter's there right away. Like right now, as I said, those searches will produce Twitter data. I think they're going to plan to do Facebook and MySpace. I think early next year, so that's coming soon as well. But I did see other ones as well, just from uh, you know other news sites. They they were included in the real time search as well. Now Google isn't the only one doing this. No, Yahoo has also announced that it's doing real-time search. Uh, so I, look, this is they're all going to do it, I'm sure. I mean, Bing's going to follow suit. If it doesn't, it's going to be you know, falling behind or falling further behind. And actually, just while we're on the topic of search engines, uh, just a small digression here. Uh, someone sent me a, a link to a search engine blind test. This is where you punch in a, a search, you know, for example, electric vehicles. And it produces search results in three columns. One column will be Google, the other column will be Yahoo, and the third will be Bing. And you have no idea which one is which. And the idea is for you to scan through the, the results, work out which you think are the most relevant, and then you click the button to see which one it was that you, you preferred. So it truly is a blind test. And I did the test a couple of times. I preferred the results from Google. A close second was Yahoo and Bing was last. Now, I remember ruling out Bing. Now, of course, I didn't know it was Bing at the time, but the one column just seemed fairly out there. It was kind of like not really that relevant. It was pretty poor. So I ruled that one out, which, as I said, was Bing, but I didn't know at the time. The other two left were obviously Yahoo and Google. And I must say, it was kind of hard to choose between them. Google was number one, but only by a, a very small margin. So I would actually consider Google and Yahoo fairly comparable. And as I say, Bing just wasn't doing it for me. So uh, if you want to try it yourself, the URL is blindsearch.fejusfejus.com. So that's blindsearch.fejus.com. And uh, if you won't remember that URL, just do a Google search for search engine blind test and it's the first result there. Uh, That's as long as you're using Google. If you're using Bing to search for that, (laughs) it may not come up. So back to the stories, yeah, so we've got Google and Yahoo now doing live searches. Now you can search for something topical on those engines and get up to the minute, literally up to the minute results. You know, as soon as a new story is published on Tiger Woods, it's there in your in your results. You don't need to refresh the page, they just come through automatically. It's, it's quite neat, you should try it yourself at some point. Now I saw some interesting statistics on data use. This is kind of hard to believe, but... Apparently, Americans consume 34 gigabytes of data per day. Yeah, per day. I don't, that, that's, for me, that's about six weeks worth. Now, apparently, it doesn't just include internet. It includes a whole range of things like TV as well. And, of course, 
I don't know what the bitrate for TV is, but I'd imagine it's fairly high. And the other thing is it doesn't filter out double counting. So if someone's watching the, the watching TV and they're on the internet at the same time downloading something, well, they count two lots of data for that, even though it's the same, you know, you're doing it at the same time. So yeah, 34, it's just phenomenal. 34 gigabytes daily per person. So in 2008, in all of the United States of America, collectively, people consumed 3.6 zettabytes of data. And a, zeta, a zettabyte is absolutely huge. You know, we've got megabytes, gigabytes, next up is terabytes, then petabytes, then exabytes, and then it's zettabytes. So 10 to the power of 21, this is absolutely phenomenal. But yeah, some interesting statistics. Uh, to be honest, I, it, it's actually hard to, to just to comprehend because even, you know, just looking at a day, 34 gigabytes, it's, it's hard to fathom how you could actually collect 34 gigabytes worth of information. It just seems too high. Maybe, maybe someone's got the decimal point in the wrong place and they've miscalculated. I don't know. But apparently those are the figures. So there you go. Now, while we're talking about the United States, There's been an alarming security breach there. An airport security manual has been posted on the internet. So we're talking about a 90-page transportation security administration manual and it was marked sensitive security information. It's been just sitting there on the internet since March. So for almost a year now, this thing was out there. Obviously no one knew and um, I could only guess that people have downloaded it and obtain the information held therein, but obviously they, they, don't, they don't want to say that they've done that. So it didn't go reported for a while, and it's only now that they've realised. So this is a huge security concern because it shows information about settings for x-ray machines and uh, the, the minimum amount of metal that you can have that won't be detected, things like that, things that can help people get around security and compromise airport security. Other information that was contained in that manual is things like items that uh, the, the screeners decide not to check, things like wheelchairs, and also what the ID cards look like for CIA and federal air marshals. And now what they're worried about is that the manual will pretty much become a textbook for those seeking to penetrate aviation security. And I'd say they're not far off the mark. It's Now that it's out there, that I, I think what they need to do is change the, the way the security works because now that the, the manual's out there, uh, you know, you've, you're going to have to do something differently now and th- you can't retract what's out on the on the internet anymore. People have found that out by saying things on Twitter and Facebook that they now, now regret. That information is, is always there. The internet never forgets. So you can't retract, you can't pull this thing back. So what are you going to have to do? Well, you're going to have to change your security procedures so that they no longer match what's in the manual. I think that's pretty much the only measure that they can take against this now that it's out there. So I'd say I'd say someone's job might be on the line. That's a pretty bad security breach. I, I don't know how the stuff ends up on the internet like that, but someone was must have been very careless. Although, if I can just reference the KiwiCon conference once again, one of the thing, one of the uh, experiments that one of the researchers did was to scan the the whole New Zealand uh, internet space. What he found was absolutely amazing. There were all these devices. Some were servers, some were printers, some were control stations that were open on on the on port eighty. You could you know, just go to that IP address and and you're presented with a configuration page. 
Uh, and I've seen that at work, actually. A lot of our printers are just not secured. You can go to the IP address of the printer and you can do all sorts of things. You can print stuff, you can change its IP address, render it useless until you know a support call is logged to look into it. And some of the devices they found there were things like management interfaces for power systems, as in electricity systems. It wasn't clear whether this was something that was just local to a building or whether it was something that was controlling a local substation. But a bit of a worry what's actually out there. And just coming back to the story about the security manual, that's just one example of, I'm guessing, a whole host of stuff that's out there that really shouldn't be out there. And as I said, the internet never forgets. And, and that's that's one of the hardest things because once it's out there, it's out there for good. You know, you, you can pretty much forget about trying to re-secure that stuff. That information's out there. Alrighty, and that's pretty much all I had for you for the international stories. I guess uh, time to take a short break. When we come back, we'll look at the New Zealand stories. Don't go away. Thank you and welcome back. Now, a florist in Napier is being accused of, well, it's interesting, the media call it hacking. I wouldn't really call it hacking, but effectively what she's done is she's gone to Google Maps and on Google Maps, you can find contact details of other businesses. The allegation here is that she's gone onto Google Maps and subtly changed the details of her rivals. So these other florists, these other competitors out there in Napier and in the Hawke's Bay region have had their contact details ever so slightly changed. She's basically been vandalizing the data. Now, it, I must say that anyone can edit these things. This is It's not something that, you know, she hasn't hacked into an account or, or used some script to find a security hole and go in it's it's open to anyone i mean i apparently i can i haven't tried but i can supposedly go in and change the details if i want of of any business and the allegation is that at first it was just uh, phone numbers being changed and then it was the addresses and then the website urls uh, so now she's being trialed for this she's going to court she's being charged with using the google search engine to dishonestly and without claim of right cause loss to seven other Hawks Bay florists. Now, I'm kind of in two minds about this because, sure, you can kind of see what, if you know, if the allegations are correct, you can see what she's doing. She's obviously vandalizing the contact details of, of her competitors so that they don't get business. So when someone phones them, the phone number's wrong. Or when they go to the URL, it takes them to a different site or, or no such site. But on the other hand, she hasn't hacked anything at least not that we know, that's not, you know, the allegation is that she's just edited the details using the, you know, using Google Maps and anyone can do that. It's, it's, as I understand, it's a bit like Wikipedia. You know, people vandalize Wikipedia or write silly things on Wikipedia. So part of me says, well, you know, it, it, it's, it's just an open system. It, it, there's nothing stopping anyone from changing stuff. And yeah, uh, unless you're signing an agreement that, whatever you change is truthful, then I I don't really see how this can be a a, a case. There's no impersonation. It's not like she's impersonating. Well, actually, you could argue that she is because there there are allegations that she's actually logged on using different names. So she's kind of got different accounts. I guess that's just to make it harder to track. But, uh, you know, she's, yeah, I don't know. I can... 
I can see both sides of this one, and I, I really don't know. I, I think it's not as clear-cut as, you know, if she'd actually hacked into an account and, and sabotaged the, the information that way. That's, that's very clear-cut. But as I say, she's going through a perfectly legitimate process. This would pretty much be a New Zealand first. In fact, a spokeswoman from Google, uh, Annie Baxter, had said that this is pretty much the first case of its kind that they know of in New Zealand. Uh, And she says that most people editing Google Maps are updating information that they know to be out of date in order to help fellow users. But she goes on to say that anyone with a Google account can edit business information on Google Maps, such as correcting the location or updating a phone number. So what's the solution? Well, she says that businesses should log on and claim their listings in Google Maps. That's basically an action to say that I'm, I confirm that I am the legitimate business owner of that particular business listing. And that way, only the authorised person can then change that information. The fact that it works that way kind of makes me think, well, you know, she's, she's done something morally wrong, but has she done something legally wrong? But I guess if there's a case brought against her, then there's... There's reason to believe that she has done something uh, against the law. Now on to ACTA, the anti-counterfeiting trade agreement that we all know is really nothing about counterfeiting. Well, part of it probably is, but it's more to do with copyright on the internet. Uh, It's going to change the way things work and people are worried that this thing just isn't... Well, people are worried about two things. Number one, that it's been negotiated in secret. Uh, we know that there are the countries involved are New Zealand, the US, the UK, the EU, Canada, uh, Switzerland as well, uh, Japan, and a few others. So it's been it's been negotiated in secret, and some of the content has been leaked, as we know. There really hasn't been any consultation. The public has not been consulted with this on this at all. So people are worried that this just isn't going to work. Well, a couple of examples uh, to show you. Number one, ISPs are apparently going to be forced to block anything that could be pirated material. So the onus will be on the ISPs to to block, to, to police the internet to some degree. Now, how, how is that going to work? And even, even, if it's, even if they have resources, how are they going to differentiate between, you know, freeware software versus pirated commercial software? You know, if they see uh, a lot of downloads for, I don't know, Calendar Pro or something some app that's particularly popular, how do they know that it's commercial and being pirated? How do they know whether it's just freeware or whether it's something that's been pirated that's normally commercial? Another example is the, the, the three strikes law, you know, the one where you get three strikes or three accusations of having breached copyright without proof, mind you, that's the other thing, and then you're banned from the internet. Now, again, how's that going to work for businesses? So say you own a business, if an employee in your organization does something naughty three times and you can't track that culprit, well, then it, it means that your entire business is going to be banned from the internet. They're going to disconnect your business. Now, you could say, well, it's up to the business owners to, to monitor that. Uh, again, is that, is that, is that, a, is that fair? Is that, is that feasible? And one more example, it's going to be illegal to crack the DRM tools that are you know put on DVDs and MP3s and, and software. So, okay, you might think, well, that, that's a no-brainer. That's, that's a good thing. Let's do it. Well, the problems with that are that DRM-protected malware and viruses would also be illegal to crack. So, okay, some malware comes in, some viruses come in, and there's DRM on that. Oh, suddenly it's illegal to, 
to try and combat that because breaking the DRM to fight the virus is illegal, which seems silly. Okay, maybe they're going to put in some exceptions for that. We don't know because, of course, all this information, all all these negotiations have been done in secret, so we really don't know. The other problem, of course, is this. Suppose a major piece of commercial software has a vulnerability related to some DRM mechanism. Under the ACTA, under the, this, this treaty, the security researchers would have their hands tied. They wouldn't be able to kind of reverse engineer and get around the DRM to, to patch this, the software uh, or to find uh, or to even discover the, the vulnerability in full. So, the, so there are potentially some issues. Again, Maybe these issues are going to be addressed by the finer detail, but we don't know that finer detail because none of these governments have been consulting. It's all done in secret. So it's it's particularly unpopular. And in fact, it's so unpopular that here in New Zealand, there's a, a site that's been launched, acta.net.nz. So that's A-C-T-A dot net dot N-Z. It's a coalition of different interest groups that have put together this site, uh, including uh, Internet NZ, Creative Freedom Foundation, uh, a few other tech consultants, and also the web guru, Nat Talkington. So check out that site if you're interested. It, it gives you all the information that they've managed to gather about Actor and what it means and the you know the implications for, for copyright on the internet. And the last New Zealand story, and therefore the last story for this episode, uh, just recently a seminar was held here in Wellington on online suppression. A good recent example would be the high-profile New Zealand entertainer who apparently admitted a sexual offence against a young woman. Now, he's got permanent name suppression. We all know who he is. It's easy to find out. There are people talking about it on the blog. In fact, if you do Google searches, you can find out. So if you really, if you really want to know, it's, you can find out this information. It's, it's really not that hard on the internet. But more importantly, it's very hard to enforce the suppression outside our borders. Because we rely on the cooperation of the other party. So if some message board or something overseas publishes the name of this person, the only way that's going to be removed is with the cooperation of that person because our jurisdiction, our laws, don't apply beyond our borders. So anyway, coming back to the seminar that I was referring to, they reckon that it's actually not a, not a lost cause. They reckon that there are strategies to combat that. And one of the examples is that, well, you know, if we can get the big guys, so for example, if, if someone publishes information that's suppressed in New Zealand on Yahoo, on one of the Yahoo sites, that if, if we can convince Yahoo to remove that material, then the smaller guys will follow suit as well. I'm not so convinced about that, to be honest, because there are so many other places out there where information can hide. You know, forums, message boards, even internet relay chat, you know, on, on real-time chat. I mean, how, how are you going to censor that, for example? So I don't know. It's they're convinced that this is it's not a lost cause and that that we can do things about it. But I'll take the more pessimistic and I believe the more realistic viewpoint that it pretty much is a lost cause. And sure, you can enforce suppression here in New Zealand. So a New Zealand court can enforce that suppression here within our borders reasonably effectively. But outside our borders, uh, I, I really don't think so. If you really want to find out the name of someone who's had their name suppressed, it's easy enough to do. So there you go. That's the show for this week. Uh, The second to last show for the year. We've got one more left. uh, Episode number 48 next week. And that'll be it for 2009. And that'll be pretty much the first year 
for the boys of tech and we've certainly come a long way since our first episode so anyway uh this isn't the last one so we won't do the the merry christmas this time around we'll do that next time around i'd like to thank you all for joining us for episode 47 it's been a good one and hope to see you all next week for the final for the year so thanks again for joining us see you again next week bye bye everyone take care